Hello everybody and welcome to episode 4 of Coworkers Killing Time. This week I'm very excited because it is our first true crime episode. So we had talked a little bit about why we liked true crime and cases that we thought were interesting and one of the things that I had thought of was why don't we talk about crimes from our hometowns. We seem to have a lot of those. Around in the state of Connecticut. We really do. I mean, I feel like most states do. Probably. And for my personal case, where I grew up, last year there was a lot of attention around it because the podcast Paper Ghosts came out. And I know everybody in this area, even people who hadn't listened to podcasts in my life, were like, have you heard this? It's so interesting. Okay, so sadly, I have not heard that. So I will go home tonight and listen to that so that we can be on the same page. Okay. Yes. So, for my case, I am taking us to Tolland, Connecticut. Robin, where are you taking us? Glastonbury, Connecticut. Yes, so we both grew up in Connecticut. So, we are going to be diving into my case first. And my case is Janice Pocket. So, the town of Tolland is where I grew up. I had an idyllic childhood. It was a small town. It still is a small town. And back when this happened, it was even smaller. So growing up, my mom was always very protective of us. She wouldn't let us drive during snowstorms. Whenever we got anywhere, we had to call her to let her know that we got there safely. And she's still like that now, even though my brother and I are in our 30s. But there was always one rule that we were not allowed to ride our bikes on the road to go to our cousin's house. And For those of you listening, Robin knows this. My family lives so close to everyone. Everyone lives on the same streets. So we were just riding around a corner. But because of what happened when my mom was a child, we were not allowed to ride bikes to our cousins' houses. So on July 26, 1973, when my mom was 10, Janice Pocket went missing while riding her bicycle. She was seven years old at the time. The important thing to know is things like this really don't happen in Tolland. So when this happened, this was a huge deal. So even growing up when I was older, people were still talking about this like 30 years later. So even as I graduated high school in 2003, I think this was my earliest brush with true crime. And I think this is definitely the thing that piqued my interest in it because before that, I never really thought things like this could happen. I feel like most people as children don't realize things like this could happen and that there's bad things and bad people in the world. But I was definitely interested in learning more about it and what makes people involved in this, whoever made her disappear, do the things that they do. So unfortunately, her case still remains unsolved, but here are the details as they are. So she was last seen leaving her family's home on Anthony Road in Tolland. She was riding a metallic green bike through their neighborhood to retrieve a butterfly that was a dead butterfly that she had found and hidden behind a rock so that she could come back and get it later. So according to her sister Mary, via the Paper Ghost podcast, they had been arguing that day like children do. So when Janice had asked their mother to leave to go retrieve the butterfly, her mother agreed to let her go alone. And as a mom, I think the natural reaction is, oh my gosh, why would you let her go alone? But also as a mom, we've all been in that situation where your kids are arguing and driving you insane. So something like that happens and they're like, oh, can I go ride my bike or can I go play? And you're like, yes. 
Please go. Because you, yeah, right. Mm, please right. go. Because you don't like think leave, anything... leave your brother alone. Right. Go. You don't think yeah. anything like that's going to happen. Of course not. So I definitely feel a major amount of sympathy for her mother yes. and her family. Absolutely. So I think it's also important to note that because it's Tolland, this was super common. Because it was such a small town, people, kids could go anywhere and do anything. I know my family talks about how the cousins back before this happened would just meet up and do whatever and roam around Tolland on their bikes. So this was not abnormal. And until a few years ago, I know many people didn't even lock their cars or houses until all the break-ins started happening because it's that small of a town. We don't even have a police department. No, we do not. Well, I say we, but I don't live there anymore. Uh, Talon doesn't even have a police department. (laughs) So she left her house with an envelope in hand to retrieve the butterfly. And after 30 minutes, her mom went looking for her. She found her bike on Rhodes Road in Talon. And it's important to know it's not Rhodes Road. It's R-H-O-D-E-S Road in Talon, which is a highly wooded area. It still is today. The bottom part of it is closer to a lot of businesses and a busy area of Talon now, but back then it wasn't. And where the bike was found is definitely not, was not a highly trafficked area. It's where the elementary school is now, but back then it was just woods. So it's where the big corner is. It was definitely a remote area back then. So... Over 800 people searched for weeks for her. It was one of the biggest searches in Connecticut history. And the envelope and the butterfly were never found either. Wow. So she left with them. And if she got the butterfly, then they both went with her, the envelope and the butterfly. So while she was never found, uh, many other young girls also went missing in surrounding towns. So this is actually part of the Paper Ghost podcast and why I'm referencing it so much because... Growing up in Tolland, we always heard about Janice Pocket and we knew who that was and that she was missing. And that when my parents were young, because they both grew up in Tolland, and my aunts and my uncle, this happened. So I was kind of shocked when I was listening to this and hearing all of the other people that were missing that had kind of relatable cases to this that might have been the same MO or the same person doing this, or maybe not the same person doing it, but the same sort of thing was happening during this time. And it was just so interesting because you think we live in this area where everything is so calm and nothing like this happens. And then you hear this podcast and this is happening like rampantly during this time because it's many people and it's all in this period in the seventies. So that was kind of shocking. So multiple suspects have arisen throughout the history of this case. And there was even a confession from a man named Charles Pierce. So this is according to the Research Center for Cold Case Missing Children Cases. So he also confessed to killing other children. And uh, I remember when this happened as well, because I believe this was in 1999, 2000, when this confession happened. And it was a big deal because this is the hugest thing that happened in this town. And it was, everyone was talking about it. And then it turned out that he was just doing this for attention. Because so he was not credible anyway. No, because he was he was just another criminal. So he was already sentenced to a 20-year prison sentence for another crime against a young girl when he died of cancer in 1999. And um, 
he was not credible. It came out that he was doing this for attention to try to get out of jail, to go on like scouting missions with the police to say, oh, this is where she was. And this is where it was. And certain things would be correct. And then they'd get to a point and he wouldn't be able to tell them where she was. So you didn't do it. You're just looking for attention, which is disgusting. So Janice's parents have both passed away, but her sister Mary continues to bring awareness to her life and disappearance. She's actually in the podcast, Paper Ghosts, and I'm glad that our podcast, in its small part, because we're just doing this really quickly, is doing the same, because I think it is an important thing for all of these young girls who went missing. So if you do want to hear more about this case and the other local missing girls, definitely check out the podcast, Paper Ghosts, season one, because they now have a second season that's not about this uh it's definitely worth the listen and also um i had looked on the charlie project website and that is where they had a lot of information about it as well that i didn't really know so you can dive into it there at that website so that is my case robin i just have a couple of questions well or comments first of all i've never heard of this case until i think it was on Maybe an episode of Unsolved Mysteries or something like that. I had never heard of it. And, and I mean, Glastonbury and Tolland aren't terribly far apart. No. But I guess when you're young and we didn't have social media back in the day, it's like m- may have been states apart, you know. Um, but I, I don't know if my parents heard about this because when I was 11, which would have been 1980, I was allowed to ride my bike from my house <laughs> miles away to my school at academy school like it was not even a thing like it was not a big deal and then i remember riding my bike also down more into the center of town with my friend laura so um had my parents heard about this i feel i would have to hope that they would have been a little bit more concerned about my safety (laughs) i'm not sure and i could tell you my sister who's who's older than I was, she had privileges to go all over the place on her bike. I do remember that being like, I, I was, I had to be a little bit older to be able to do that. But so my question to you is your mom, how, what is your stance on letting your, your kids ride their bikes around the neighborhood without you or just with each other or alone or whatever? How do you so, feel about that? So my kids, we live on a cul-de-sac, so my kids ride their bike on the cul-de-sac, but I'm outside with them. They don't go out onto the main road or anything, or they don't even go down to the end of the area where the road intersects with our road. Right. Because I worry about people snatching them. And yes. I think it's truly because I was raised with this fear of like, oh, if you go on your bike alone, it's like... It's not, and I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way when I say this, but it was like an urban legend growing up. Like, if you ride your bike, this could happen because sure. it happened once. And I'm I'm not saying, like, I'm di- not discrediting this or anything. Right. I'm saying, like, oh, it's not real because it is. I'm just saying, when I grew up 30 years removed from this happening, it was like a mythology thing. Right. You didn't let your kids ride your bike. And some parents did because they just didn't care. Or they didn't know if they were new to town. But, like, because my parents and my aunts and my uncle grew up in it, and actually my aunt's husband, my uncle, because I have a biological uncle and then I have an uncle through marriage, he grew up in the area where this happened. So I'm sure, especially for them, this was a big deal. Sure. Wow. Okay. Well, I, my my older boys, um, even when they were younger, I wasn't a big fan of them being out of my sight at all. And it had nothing to do with any of 
this kind of thing. I'm just a psycho mom. And I used to be terrified that somebody would take my kids Mm -hmm. anywhere, like no matter where we went. Right. So, um, you know, things like that happen. But uh, now, now my 10 year old, he's allowed to ride specifically from one road down to another road, which is right on, right on our street. But it's usually with other kids and I'm okay with that part. My main concern now is that he's just kind of aloof. Like he might just get himself, you know, hit by a car, but. But that's I, just not paying attention. That's what I'm saying. He's just kind of like, you know, I going like through life. All like all kids <laughs> now, though, because of, like, video games and phones and things. I mean, my kids don't have phones. They're no, too my, young. no, but neither does But I think one. with, like, the video games and everything, they're just like, la, la, la. Right. Not really concerned about w- the bigger picture around them. Like, the actual The actual world. what's happening <laughs> on the road right in front of them. Yes. Right. So. Okay, well, um, my case happened. It's it's the it's called the Harris murder. It has a title. That's nice. November twenty sixth, nineteen eighty, and again, I was eleven at this time. This is again when my mom and dad would just let me ride my bike anywhere at that time. But whatever. Um, a fifty fifty four year old father of two who was a Pratt and Whitney foreman was leaving for work at. I think it was mid around 11 p.m. He worked like the overnight shift. His wife was asleep on the couch and he had left like he does every single night. He closed the garage door. And at that point, right after he closed the garage door, he was attacked so brutally that he didn't even have a chance to respond, react. He was just like in the ambushed. Driveway? Yes. Oh, so he never even left for work. He never left for work. He was just ambushed as soon as he came out. As soon as he shut the garage door, pulled out the car and shut the garage door. And then, and then he was bludgeoned to death at that point. Um, there were no cries or sounds of struggle, according to his wife, who was, again, asleep asleep on the couch. She didn't hear anything. So the person that did this stole his Pratt & Whitney watch jumped in his car so as not to arouse suspicion and drove a quarter of a mile um, down the road, down Nipsick Road. This happened actually, I think it was like three houses up from my house. That's why I've, I've always been super interested in this case. It literally happened right up the road from me. And then, so he abandoned the car. I assume it's a he. Could have been a woman. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it's a man. That sounds like a brutal attack <laughs> for a like, woman to do right. to a man. I mean, crazier things have happened, but yeah. I, don't, I don't think so. So he drove the car down Nipsick Road and and parked it, left it, abandoned it um, under the Route 2 underpass. And then who knows where he went from there. Um, and as of now, I have to tell you, I have Googled the crap out of the story over the past week or so, and I, I cannot find very much of anything. I maybe should have called the Glastonbury Police Department, but I didn't do that. But as of 1998, it was Glastonbury's only unsolved murder. So that's, you know, pretty, pretty amazing. Wow, but pretty amazing. there's just not much about it. Um, his car had been repeatedly vandalized in the Pratt and Whitney parking lot previously because he again he was a foreman and i believe at that time there were some like serious issues between the union Mm -hmm. like union um contract discussions yes so lots of people were hating management and he was he was a man he was a member of management that seems like you have a litany of suspects so yeah well actually the one there was a person of interest but they could never get any get anything on him but he was somebody that mr harris fired 
So they thought, oh, this guy's a prime suspect, but they could never really get any physical evidence or anything. So it still goes unsolved, I believe. That's um, crazy. And I mean, I feel like driving the car, he would have had to been covered. He or something. she would have had to been like covered in blood yes. from the attack. So you would think like there would be some sort There'd be of some like, evidence. handprint or something unless they just went in like a Tyvek suit, which right. then again leads motive to the fact that maybe it's somebody who worked with right. them. Because I don't know if our listeners know this, but Pratt & Whitney, which is now Raytheon Technologies, yep. Yep. is a big uh, aerospace defense producer in our state it's like one of the biggest businesses in the state of connecticut yes so his son get anything um came home at 5 45 a.m from a midnight bowling league and found his body can you imagine no um and also the only the only physical evidence they found at the scene besides obviously the dead body was a boot print from when the person um i don't know whatever they said they found one boot print but they couldn't actually take take a casting of it or whatever they couldn't okay. use it so um well right and if it was like a boot print in blood like you yeah, can't can you imagine? destroy the evidence pratt and whitney interestingly enough never called to find out why he never showed up for work i'm actually not surprised so i that. i found that to be a little bit compelling that hmm so that that's honestly pretty much all of the information i have about this Murder from November 26, 1980. But I do have some personal memories of this day because they, the police, I don't know if it was FBI or just our town's police, but they were canvassing the neighborhood. So they were walking through our um, front yard, our backyard. They took like our dog's frisbee. I remember they like literally took, walked off with, okay, whatever, but take the Frisbee. Um, and they, they, it was kind of an eerie, spooky thing to be 11 years old and see people just walking through our yard, just looking at our stuff. Um, I do remember the power going out that night. And now I have asked my mom and my sister about this. My sister basically just said everything that I just said. She remembered all of that stuff. Um, she doesn't remember the power going out. I asked my mom, what do you remember about the Harris murder? And she remembered a few things. And I asked her, do you remember the power going out? She goes, no, you know, but your dad and I were stoned probably. So I don't have a lot of memory of that anyway. I'm like, all righty. There's Wait, that. so did you say why the power went out? Was it a storm? No idea why. No, there was, oh. I don't think there was a storm. I just remember being absolutely terrified out of my mind in our little, like, porch, we called it, with all four of us, my mom, my dad, my sister, and I were watching TV, and the power went out, and I was, I don't think it was out for, like, a long time, but it was enough where I thought, oh, God, they're coming for us now? You know, I was terrified. I was really scared. And then I remember having to um, walk up to the bus stop every day past their house and I would never ever ever walk on their side of the road I was at I would like run by their house I was so scared I, I remember just being like why do I have to why do I have to get the bus up here I don't want to do this it was really terrifying to me being right. 11 years old well I would imagine I yes. did not like that knowing at all. that it was a murder and you're old enough at 11 years old to know what that is and what that means and be scared about I that. was absolutely terrified so that's that. And um, I can't imagine that anybody else would have any sort of information about it. I believe that his, um, Mr. Harris's wife has, has long since passed. And I think he did have a brother, according to the uh, that newspaper article from the Hartford Current. 
that the brother was like 76 years old back in 1999. So I'm sure he's long since passed. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think there's probably any interest in it anymore. But I would love to know more about it if there's any more information out there. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope that you enjoyed our hometown true crime episode. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for future episodes, or just want to send us something cool, please reach out to us at coworkerskillingtime at gmail.com. You can also follow along with our episodes, cases, stories, and everyday lives by following our Instagram page at coworkerskillingtime. See you next week. Bye-bye.